This is AutoLine Extra, available exclusively on the internet. Here again is John McElroy. Welcome to our continuing discussion here on uh, the internet with Michael Robinette from CSM Worldwide, Steve Finley from Ward's Dealer Business, and Christy Nordhelm from the University of Michigan. And we didn't get this done in the broadcast version, but Christy had raised the issue, what are the core competencies of GM, or what are the core competencies of Chrysler? Michael, I'll put that to you. What, what's Chrysler's core competency? Uh, Jeep. Uh, Jeep and Jeep. Um, if you take a look at if you take a look at Dodge, you take a look at Chrysler. I think of those vehicles, and they, the, the styling was starting to take a turn, but the engineering really didn't catch up with it. And so they they really need to work double time on the fuel economy side, on the uh, also on the content issue. Uh, there's a lot of issues there, and and certainly you know they've done a pretty good job on Jeep, but they may have extended it too far. So if you, you need to go back to what the core competency was, Jeep was. Go anywhere, go, any, go in anytime, rugged. It needs to continue to do that. Give vehicles like Compass completely out of the out of the equation and let that be, let that brand be what it really should be. Which they are going to do. Get rid of Compass, they, they get rid of Commander. Do, but they're talking about bringing in a small C-segment type vehicle, which basically is Compass done better. <laughs> uh, I'm not so sure I would I would agree with that. But, but then where does Dodge go? Does Dodge need to be everything to everybody? And this is the other issue we had talked earlier about dealers a little bit. I think the whole idea of a Chrysler Dodge Jeep dealer in the future is going to be completely different. Their portfolio is going to have to slim down. They're not going to be everything to everybody. And that is another core competency that I think is going to be important for these guys. They can't be everything. You can't have a portfolio that's this wide. It needs to be a lot slimmer going forward. It really does. What do you think the fiat influence is going to be product-wise? Uh, Product-wise, they're going to help the most substantially on the, on the smaller car end, but it's really the powertrain. I mean, Chrysler, uh, and they'll even tell you this, they are so far behind on technology on the powertrain side that they absolutely got to step it up, especially in four-cylinder engines. They, uh, you know, Ford and GM and, and the Japanese, definitely, and the Koreans are definitely eating their lunch in that respect. I was in uh, Italy a couple weeks ago, and there's a lot of 500s in, in Rome, and I'm thinking, man, that's a small car. But I thought the same thing about the Mini. I didn't think that was going to be a success. The other interesting thing about vehicles in, in Italy is that smarts are all over the place. I've never seen so many smarts. Only in Italy. <laughs> Only in Italy. And in Greece. I mean, yeah, a, a few markets, too, and parked outside of train stations. But going back to Chrysler, I would say there is a core competency there. They have shown in the past they're terrific at design, and they're terrific at finding a hole in the marketplace where they can put a vehicle where nobody else is at, or they, they put a combination. So it seems to me they're very good at product planning and design and doing things relatively quickly. Exactly, Ho they're very nimble in that regard. Hopefully they haven't lost that capability, but if, if Fiat can help bring that back, I, look, I've seen Chrysler pull a rabbit out of the hat twice in my career. There's no reason why they can't do it again. That's, oh, that's what the they were. That's what attracted Daimler to, to them, was that nimbleness, the ability right. to, to change quickly in this That market. and $12 billion in cash that they just <laughs> happen to have in the bank, too. Right. Well, that speed to market is a great core competence, but the concern I always have about Chrysler is when you fill a hole like that, you have to fill it with something that can't be readily imitated. I mean, that's, that's always the, that's the true test of a core competence. I can do it. Can everybody else follow me and do it exactly the same afterwards, in which case I'm just kind of the market research firm for my competition. But then, to your point, you got to stick with it, because look at the PT Cruiser. You know, it came out, had great fanfare, then they did nothing with the mm -hmm. vehicle. There was no range extension, model range extension. Mm -hmm. There was no really technology enhancement or anything like that, a mild facelift. 
Meanwhile, GM came out with the HHR, made a run at it, really didn't go anywhere, mm -hmm. even though the same guy designed both vehicles, Brian Nesbitt. Right. Right. And then Chrysler said, well, now it's not selling, we'll kill it off. And right. then all of a sudden they realized, well, geez, it's still selling, so we'll keep on building it, but we're going to kill it off. And then Marchione comes in and goes, what are you guys, crazy? We're going to keep building this another year. Yeah. So th there, there's got to be a stick to itness, and And the same goes for branding, too, yes. right? I mean, yes. these guys drop brand names like we change clothes. Right. And in the end, really what that's about is staying with the consumer and managing the transitions in the consumer's life, right? So when the consumer makes a transition from college to their first job or to their first kid or to their last kid, right? Are we going to transit them from one brand to another? Are we going to transit them from one product to another? What is the plan, right? If we focus just on these cars, oh, sales are up, sales are down, let's kill it, let's keep it, then we're not thinking about the, the, the foundation of their, of their sustainability, which is the customer. So that skill at managing the transitions, especially the life stage transitions, is absolutely crucial in the auto industry. You know, you mentioned earlier about uh, trying to brand build a bad vehicle. It reminds me of the famous uh, Not My Father's Oldsmobile ads, which were actually quite famous. Um, the problem is, and a lot of people don't realize that there was a major problem, is that uh, it, it led young people who they were trying to capture to ask what's wrong with Oldsmobile, that they're saying not my father's Oldsmobile, and then it led people who were Oldsmobile buyers to say, what's wrong with me? <laughs> and John Rock, who was the general manager at the time, to your point, said the problem was all our vehicles were our father's Oldsmobiles. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, you can't pretend something is what it isn't. Absolutely not, and there's no transition from old to young, right? There, there, it, it doesn't happen. Uh, you, that's you can, a good point. You but know. what if a car gets a bad rap to it? I mean, and that, that's been Ford's excuse, not recently, but in the not too recent past, or not too distant past, of, uh, of saying, geez, you know, we kind of blew it with this car. We're coming out with the new version of it. Everybody knows the name uh, mm -hmm. of the old one, and they associate bad things with it. Let's change it. So you went from what, uh, Aerostar to Windstar to what right. was the last version of it? Right, Free Star. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so Taurus to should, uh, should you keep a name? Although, although you had just mentioned Taurus, and and I remember when the Taurus first came out in '86, and and you know, and it actually absolutely catapulted Ford at least in this mm -hmm. market and really propelled them. And then there's a lot of the '92 Taurus wasn't too bad, but then there's some other ones that we all want to forget. I'm going to tell you, the, the buzz I'm hearing in town from a lot of people and consumers is, I can't wait to see that new Taurus. And I, there are people considering Ford now that I thought, you're considering a Ford? I thought you'd be a Lincoln buyer at the very least. But you're, and, and, and so it's that kind of product does win all in some respects. But you've got to continue the message. You've got to continue. Well, Ford consumers do a have role. a, yeah, cons consumers do have a remarkably short memory. I, I mean, it, it's, it's a, kind of a simultaneously a very long memory and a very short memory. They can get offended. And if they get offended, then they can they can hold that insult for, for a while. Um, but uh, you know, again, you're trying to solve a product problem with marketing, right? Do I change the name? Do I not change the name? Here's the answer: Don't make a bad product, right? <laughs> then you don't have that problem. I know people that you know will not buy a Ford today because they had a problem with a Ford Pinto in the 70s. So you know, some people have long memories. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about consumers is. You know, they're all different. You know, human beings are nothing if not varied and adaptable. So, you know, this consumer can have totally different tastes and wants than this consumer. Some people, if they walk into a showroom and they're not greeted right away, they're offended. They're thinking, well, you know, I'm not good enough to be greeted or, you know, I'm, they're not paying attention to me. 
Others, you know, take that as an offense that the salesperson's jumping on them. Right. So, you know, you, you, you got to kind of figure out each individual consumer because well, it's not a problem. big block. Right, it isn't a big block. And, and the more kind of heterogeneous, the more different your customer base is, the more difficult that becomes, right? Uh, the people who walk into the Apple store, they're all pretty much the same in terms of their mentality. They look different, but they're looking for the same thing when they walk in there. And that is one of the biggest problems with trying to go broad and deep with, a, with any kind of product line is you generate this hugely varied right, and heterogeneous customer base. And then you have to figure out at the dealer level on the street, how am I going to talk to these people? Who do I expect to come through the door next? And that becomes a very, very big challenge. Well, they say a good car salesman can size up a customer as good as any psychologist when he walks or she walks through the door. Yeah, absolutely. And now we have fewer and fewer of those on the street. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. I don't know. We, uh, you know, the, the best salesman in the world, Joe Girard, says that's a bunch of baloney. You can't size people up. He said he's had people who show up in flip-flops and tattered jeans pay cash for a top-line model. And he well, said, that's he, stereotyping. He that's stereotyping. Okay. That's yeah, not that, sizing people yeah, up. There, oh, there okay. is a big yeah, difference. Okay. Sizing right. up more as to their needs you know, where to go with them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just like I said before, some people want to kind of find their own way and you can help them, but you can't guide them mm -hmm. uh, or take it, you know, control of the situation. Others want you to be an active participant as the salesperson, be a selection specialist, as some of them are called. So it, it varies. Right. Christy, the most advertised car that you cannot buy right now is the Chevy Volt. They haven't even built one yet, and I've been seeing <laughs> the ads for a year right now. Is that the right thing for GM, or let's say Chevrolet to do? And could the Volt be a brand, or should it be a brand unto itself? No, I, listen, you know, it, to me, the Volt now, it's such a, it's such a made-up car. It's like Harry Potter or something like that, right? <laughs> and they're, they're, they could be earning, you know, loads of theoretical profits on this theoretical car. So. Um, uh, I, I think they, they started a little early. They started a little early with this process. And what they've done is built up the importance of these attributes of this type of car, of a tech car, of a, of a, of a, uh, a car that is sustainable and green, et cetera, et cetera. And when, if people get excited about those attributes, they're going to go and buy a car that has those attributes that's available right now. Right? So what they're doing is, again, building a market for, for a product that they don't have. What's the risk of going early? Uh, going early with the message and not with the product? The, the, the risk is that you build up demand um, for an interest in features and benefits that people uh, may find in other products that are available right now. So you're actually advertising uh, the features of your competition in essence. So if I really want, if the Volt's not, not available and I really want an electric car, well, what am I going to get? A Prius. Right? I remember Ford ballyhooing the Thunderbird, you know, until it was introduced. I think the Ballyhoo took longer than the actual product was on That's the road. Yeah. Far That's fewer the, products the program available kept then. getting delayed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think another reason, John, that they'll do it is is I remember the uh, minivan. You know, uh, when they showed spy shots of the, uh, I think it was the '96 minivan, way ahead of time, just to get people anticipating that there's some product coming. Oh, by the way, we got some other stuff. Then when you walk into the dealership, you might like that too. But I think I think that they're trying to trying to draw more people into the Chevy showroom, thinking, thinking, you know. We are progressive. You may not think we are, but we will be getting some new product out. You're right. It may be a little soon, but I think they're trying to build some uh, increased awareness of where Chevy may be going in the future. See, I, I think it's all changed. I think it started out uh, hyping GM and GM's yeah. competency in green technology. And, and now, thank God, finally, it's starting to morph into being a Chevy Volt, not a GM Volt. And you're hearing some people have actually driven it and love it. 
Um, I've heard of some media people that have driven it and now are actually telling everybody, I've driven it, and you're really going to like it when you drive it. But the volume's I've driven not... it, and that's way too premature because none of us in the media have driven the car with the engine actually running. Right, right. And what I'm told is if you're going 70 miles down the road and the battery hits its discharge level and the engine comes on, it comes on at redline. So you go from this whisper quiet car to an engine screaming at 4,500 RPM. Nobody in the media has really done anything except drive a little bit around the proving grounds or the tech center. So I've driven it for that, that aspect of it. I would agree it's kind of neat, but I don't think we can really cast any sort of judgment on the car until we've driven the full car and its capability. Do you think the concept will really help GM? Well, I, I, wanna, I was going to ask Michael that because he's, he's really uh, the product <laughs> well, and technology and, well. and volume expert here. Um, it, it's going to help them, but it's, it's low volume. I mean, the, where the rubber going to meet the road is, is in what we call C-segment and D-segment cars, basically compact and mid-sized cars. If they can't sell those, if they can't sell the, the Cobalts and the Successor, the Cruze, as well as the Malibu and all the, the offerings from, from Buick and, and Cadillac in those size segments, it, it, we're, we're all, this is all going to be a, a, a really, really bad story. Amen. You, I agree totally. Don't yeah. you think, though, that it's going to do um, for General Motors what the Prius did for Toyota, to create this kind of umbrella of greenness and it yeah, filters but, down to the But, but there wasn't a lot lineup. of competitors to the Prius at that time, and now, you know, we were talking about the, the Fusion Hybrid before. I, I loved the car so much, I actually started looking at the sticker to see whether I should buy one. I, and I can't believe I'd actually buy a four-cylinder vehicle, but I loved it that much. I thought they did a fantastic job on ticking all the boxes. Right. And I, I think uh, the Volt is being done for the exact reasons that you raised, Steve. GM's biggest problem right now, or its individual brand problems, are a perception one. And I think they want to lay a car out there called a Chevrolet built in the city of Detroit. <laughs> that has a, a fuel economy label that's over 100 miles per gallon. Boy, now that would start to change yeah, people's attitudes. But now I gotta come to the brand expert here right. and say, will yeah. it really? Well, what again, what does Chevy mean? Does, is Chevy a Camaro or is Chevy a Volt? I mean, those are two very different kind of uh, psychic positionings, right? They're, they're very Can different. you come up with a plan that says, here's how they rationally both exist? Absolutely within? not. And and again, that is the, the, the answer is always focus, right? And, not, and I'm not well, talking for doing this. How's Toyota do it? <laughs> have a, a Camry and, and yeah, a, a but they all deliver reliability you ask any Toyota driver from a marketing perspective what when I say in Toyota one word is it they all say the same thing reliability right and what I think that reliability gave them was a foundation so that people could say okay I think I'll go ahead and try this hybrid car even though it's a little scary right so they, they say that BMW says performance you know Porsche says uh, performance in design right so what does Chevy say is it going to say hot sports car like the like the Camaro or is it going to say tech car like the Volt you know or are we going to use distinct brands which is perfectly fine you could just say this is a Camaro we're going to downplay the Chevy and this is a Volt and we're going to downplay the Chevy they can do deliver two things with two separate brands but to deliver two very very strong, powerful messages under the same brand umbrella, very challenging. How do they do it with Yvette, the Corvette? It, just because it's been around long enough that you can have this every man's brand and this, this well, if you show car. if you show someone a Corvette and ask them what this is, they, they say Corvette first. They don't yeah. say Chevy first, right? And and so the, what what looms largest for them there, and that's been the problem with GM. For some, it's the at that level, kind of at the at the the, the lower brand level. Some it's at the the divisional level, and then every once in a while there's a GMC or something like that at the at the corporate level. They've got to place their bet at one of those three levels. You know, when the Corvette first came out they were going to make it a designated car with a, a brand to itself. A brand onto itself. You go into a, a showroom and it was filled nothing with, but with uh, Corvettes and Chevy dealers said, 
over our dead bodies. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good because we probably have four doors and pickup versions of the family case. <laughs> Look, I think we ought to wrap it up right here. I want to thank all of you for coming in. It's been terrific, and I learned some things today, and that's always a good thing, and I hope you did too, tuning in on the web. 